people are trapped in history, but history also is within us and how that creates really kind of contradictory impulses in the present. Welcome to the Decolonization in Action podcast, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonham, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. Today, I'm joined by Professor Sarah Salem. She's an assistant professor at the London School for Economics and an editor at the journals Sociological Review and Historical Materialism. Sarah's research interests include political sociology, post-colonial studies, Marxist theory, feminist theory, and global histories of empire and imperialism. You can also follow her on Twitter at Sarah Salem, and she has a wonderful handle and is always providing enlightening commentary for the masses. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk a little bit about your research since it focuses on Egypt and your new book, which is entitled Anti-Colonial Afterlives in Egypt, The Politics of Hegemony, discusses what happens during and after the Egyptian Revolution. Can you tell us a bit about how colonialism was coded in Egypt under the British Empire? Yeah, so essentially the history of colonialism in Egypt is quite different from a lot of other places, I think, in the region in that the British Empire or kind of colonial forms arrived there quite early, so in the sort of late 1700s, early 1800s. But Egypt actually was never a formal British colony. Um, it was understood as to be a protectorate for quite some time. And I guess some people would describe it more as being an indirect colony or kind of, yeah, a colony that the British kind of rule administratively, but not in the sense that we see in other places across Africa and West Asia. So it has an interesting history in terms of the kind of advent of the British Empire and how it arrived to Egypt in particular. A lot of what I try to do in my work is actually trace the beginning of colonial capitalism. So I think that's something that we can see much earlier in places like Egypt, is the ways in which economic processes and the expansion of capitalism begins actually much earlier than the official date at which Egypt becomes a quote-unquote British colony. So a lot of it looks much more at the ways in which kind of economic investments began, like logics of capitalism, how they emerged across various cities and rural spaces, um, and also basically how Egypt was kind of brought into this emerging global capitalist system. And that's kind of predominantly in the book, the way I understand this history of colonialism and capitalism in the Egyptian context. Capitalism, or at least the rise of capitalism is often associated with the rise of slavery, the Industrial Revolution, and other mechanisms. And what you're pointing to is the relationship that colonialism has to capitalism in a, the Egyptian context. And I want to know to what extent does colonialism, or can colonialism, in your opinion, exist without these capitalistic forces? Or is it a way in which colonialism and capitalism are also one and the same or operate one and the same? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that that's a question that's really animated a lot of debates around the history of capitalism in the quote unquote kind of post-colonial world. I think that for me, European empire and capitalism are very co-constitutive. And I think it's very difficult uh, to 
to separate them in any meaningful way. And you, you do still have these attempts um, by some Marxist scholars, for example, to kind of make capitalism a much more central process out of which sometimes have these other social inequalities or structural inequalities like racism or colonialism and so on. But I think increasingly a lot more work now has begun to kind of take seriously the point that it's very difficult to separate these things methodologically, empirically or theoretically. And for me, the advent of European empire is precisely possible in many ways because of the expansion of capitalism and equally this expansion that happened in terms of capitalism moving outwards was really only possible through particular historical events and processes such as the transatlantic slave trade, the rise of colonial capitalism in other places. So to me, I think it's really important to, and it's, Unfortunately, we still have to make this point, but I think it is very important to make the point that these two structural systems were very much built into one another and that it's very difficult to imagine the rise of one without the rise of the other at that historical moment. Egypt became a protectorate of uh, Britain in 1882, and you alluded to Egypt having been part of the orbit of colonial capitalism or an economic capitalism beforehand. Can you explain what that mechanism was? Is it tied to trade? Is it tied to a certain kind of banking system? What are the ways that Egypt was intimately lying in the bed of this global capitalistic production? Yeah, I think it's, it, I think you can see this in various ways. I mean, I think the most prominent one is through sort of ch- shifting ways in which trade was happening at that moment. So that moment was really important because we see the decline of the Ottoman Empire and kind of the rise of various European empires. I think that in particular had a massive effect on questions of modernization and economic development in places like Egypt. And I think it's really at that moment when you begin to see certain norms around industrialization in particular become quite dominant. I think the history in Egypt is quite interesting. So a lot of scholars have kind of worked on uh, Mehmed Ali and kind of that project of modernization. And you can kind of see during that moment, even before Egypt formally became a colony, the ways in which rulers and, and kind of people in government were very conscious of the need to modernize in what some people have called de- defensively. So the idea that that Europe is able to expand in many of these countries through protecting its own industries and implementing this idea of, quote unquote, free trade onto the colonies. And so even under Mehmed Ali and kind of long sort of 1800s, you can begin to see attempts to protect actually Egyptian industries, especially in relation to commodities like cotton and in relation, of course, to places like India and 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 Britain and so on. So I think economically around trade and this question of producing commodities that can be exported to other kind of spaces in this new imperial world was really important. I think alongside that, there are also really important shifts happening at the subjective and ideological levels. So again, these ideas of industrialization and modernization, I think new forms of labor were already happening quite early on. So, and I think 
you know, people like Timothy Mitchell have written really extensively about this and how new forms of understanding space, understanding kind of living conditions, understanding work conditions were also really important in kind of laying this groundwork for what was to come in the 1900s. One of the things that I wanted to turn to in, in thinking about this history, you begin your introduction by citing a number of people, and one of those people is James Baldwin, and you, he says, the quote that you grab from him is, quote, people are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. To some extent, this quote alludes to something that you start to describe in the book, which is your inspiration, and that being the 2011 Egyptian Revolution and its connection to the, the coup d'etat and popular revolution of 1952. Can you explain the extent to which that event and that kind of time frame is relegated within the context of a history in which people are trapped? And, and I, I guess I'm alluding to Nasserism and the ways in which you lay out how Nasserism was institutionalized and part of Egyptian memory and a project that has become hegemonic. Yeah. So interestingly, this book project, actually, which is based on my PhD, actually began through a focus on the 2011 Egyptian revolution. And I was specifically interested in thinking through why this moment happened when it did. So not so much kind of engaging in a debate about what prompted the revolution or how it played out, but much more, you know, a lot of these structural conditions that gave rise to it had been present for a number of sort of years. So what kind of made this happen at this particular moment? But the more I researched it, the more I kept coming back to a very different revolution in Egyptian history, which is the 1952 coup slash revolution. And I began to think a lot about the ways in which Nasserism as a political project is a very kind of hegemonic one in the Egyptian public imagination. It's very powerful in the effects that it has, whether those effects are through nostalgia, whether they're through this idea that that was the period in which all our problems began. And I started to think a little bit about what was so powerful about that project if we compare it to the projects that came afterwards. And to me, it almost seemed like there was nothing like it afterwards. And in some ways, the revolution could in the 2011 revolution could be understood also as a consequence of that sort of the rise and fall of this very powerful project and then this vacuum that was created afterwards where no you know there was no other project that came that could even i think be called a political project so i began to think about whether it was useful to connect these two revolutions to one another and a lot of scholarship on 2011 at that time, especially right after, thought a lot about the causes through kind of the present, so the 2000, the 2000s essentially. Whereas I thought it would be important to also put this within this trajectory that connects to 1952. And the more I worked on this, the more <laughs> the project became about Nasserism and the less it became about 2011. And this is where I became really interested in sort of Gramsci and Fanon's work and how consequential this anti-colonial moment was, not only for Egypt, but I think for many countries across the world. And to me, I had this sense that revolutions like 2011 
were we were almost an afterlife actually of, of projects like Nasserism where it's an attempt to grapple with, to reconcile, to resolve, or even to achieve some of the goals and hopes that I think really animated the anti-colonial period. And so to come back to James Baldwin's quote, I thought that that quote was so great at capturing this dialectical relationship between people and history, where people are trapped in history, but history also is within us, and how that creates really kind of contradictory impulses in the present. 40 years ago when I was born, the question of having to deal with what is unspoken by the subjugated, what is never said to the master, of having to deal with this reality was a very remote, very remote possibility. It was in no one's mind. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I, that I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. Everyone else seemed to agree. If you walk out of Harlem, ride out of Harlem, downtown, the world agrees. What you see is much bigger, cleaner, whiter, richer, safer than where you are. They collect the garbage. People obviously can pay their life insurance. The children look happy, say, you're not. And you go back home. And it would seem then, of course, that it's an act of God, that this is true. That you belong where white people have put you. It is only since the Second World War that there's been a counter-image in the world. And that image not come about through any legislation on the part of any American government, but through the fact that Africa was suddenly on the stage of the world and Africans had to be dealt with in a way they'd never been dealt with before. What's so important about your work is kind of looking at those contradictions and specifically the contradictions of, on the one hand, Nasserism offered the space for a decolonial practice, but on the other hand, it also came with a certain kind of state formation, a form of state socialism and, and hyper-industrialization and modernization that led to the displacement of people in southern Egypt and Aswan, near the Aswan Dam, to other policies uh, that were imbued with authoritarianism, one could say. But at the same time, people take pride in his particular politics with respect to being uh, anti-colonial or having anti-colonial language. So what I think is so important about your work is like thinking about how those contradictions play out more globally and could be applied to other leaders who were active during that period. Yeah, definitely. And I think for the longest time, I felt very uncomfortable with just saying that this this is a contradiction of this period. I think in many ways I felt, you know, you have to almost take a side and almost say, well, was this a liberatory project or was it a project that was very much also built on forms of social violence? And I think it was only at the end where it, it felt possible to actually say that these these projects were, were both. And I think 
the reasons that they were both were also really contingent on global politics, on kind of the decline of empire and the rise of new forms of nationalism, as well as some of the choices that the projects themselves made and what emerges in terms of who were these elites that drove these projects. I also think it's quite interesting to, to me at least, that studying, so studying kind of Egypt in the past, especially within Middle East studies, there's a tendency to connect Egypt much more to other countries in the region, in the Middle East. And to me, it was interesting that the more I explored this anti-colonial moment, the more I actually made connections to other African countries. And I think there is something to be said about the way we position Egypt and the way Egypt positions itself or the way Egyptians position themselves. But that actually, to me, a project like Nasserism had many more parallels with projects in Ghana, in Kenya, in Tanzania, and kind of these these models of anti-colonial projects, I think, were quite similar. And to me, it's been interesting also to think a little bit about how this moment can also be studied by breaking apart some of the kind of conventions around how we position a country like Egypt. There are various ways in which Egypt and Egyptians relate to the rest of the continent and in some cases see it as an exception. Mm-hmm. And yet the anti-colonial movement and suggests otherwise with respect to Ghanaian freedom fighters finding themselves in Cairo and Black American folk also doing the same. And there being a kind of pan-Africanism for whatever it was worth with respect to rhetoric and or uh, certain forms of political alliances being alive and well especially in the, under the context of a, a common enemy, the British Empire being one of them, but also global capitalism being the other. So that kind of mechanism of what does it mean to relate to the rest of the continent when there is a kind of known, tangible, what shall we say, enemy, <laughs> made it a bit easier to have that solidarity. Definitely. And I think that so Reem Abu Fadl, for example, has done a lot of great work also to show that, you know, a lot of infrastructure also went into developing these connections in ways that I think since then have really not happened. So in the book, I look a little at things like radio stations, the types of conferences that happened, so also really material investments that were kind of connecting these various parts of the African continent around, like you said, you know, a really tangible kind of enemy or threat. And I think it is a really important moment to remember politically as well, just because it does raise a lot of questions around kind of this turn in the 1970s towards, I think, much more emphasis on an Arab identity, but also a really massive turn towards Gulf capital that we see in the 80s and 90s, which has created a very different set of material connections. So I want to turn to Marxism. You begin your book by asserting that Marxism is a theoretical apparatus that you can use to approach reading history and the mechanisms uh, or accounts from the revolutions in Egypt. And in many ways, uh, as you point out, Uh, Marxism was integral to the politics of the Middle East uh, and the the African continent as a whole during the 20th century, as well as uh, an integral part of the Black radical tradition with intellectual contributions of people like uh, Claudia Jones, W.B. Du Bois, uh, Walter Rodney, C.L.R. James, amongst others. How do you use Marxist theory to engage with a decolonial, post-colonial history that is very rich, very complex, and very dynamic in the Egyptian context. 
the interest in Marxism really emerged from the, the ways in which this idea of socialism was embedded in the Nasserist project and in the ways in which many movements and intellectuals engaged with these ideas of socialism and Marxism from the 40s to the 60s or 70s. And to me, it was really interesting that they did debate sort of these questions around, does Marx's work apply here? What are some of the changes we would have to make to think about, you know, this history that Marx presents in the context of Egypt, for example? But at the same time, they were it was quite clear that there was a lot of potential that they saw in these kind of theoretical discussions and debates. And alongside these debates around how Eurocentric Marxism it is, which I think in many ways it is, to me, I think the Marxist tradition and Marxist canon is also such a global canon. And, you know, for many of us, I think, like Subir Sinha has said in the past, you know, we come to Marxism actually from these post-colonial Marxist or decolonial Marxist or, you know, the black radical tradition. And that's how we engage with these ideas. And in that sense, I think it is a really important paradigm. At the same time, it was important to me to not assume this ability of theories to travel seamlessly. So in the book, I, I use Gramsci's concept of hegemony quite extensively. But a lot of the book kind of ended up being about how hegemony travels. Can this concept travel from, you know, southern Italy to Egypt? What happens when we think about hegemony in a colonial and a post-colonial context? And to do that, to think through some of that, I sort of engage with Edward Said's work on traveling theory, but also Fanon's work on how the constitution of capitalism in you know the African continent is as much about colonialism and racism as it is about this simplistic idea of class as divorced from those types of structures. So a lot of it has also been thinking through how to stretch hegemony and what it means to think about hegemony in contexts outside of the one in which it emerged. The way in which you're doing a rereading and in particular you mentioned Rahul Rao's notion of recovering reparative readings, and you try to incorporate and use Gramsci and Fanon to adopt that reparative reading of 20th century Egyptian history. And in, in some ways, it not only does that, but it also goes a step further by decentering what Marxist theory is or what people might think it is, allowing the canon to expand a bit as a, a kind of Marxism as a global process, decoloniality as a global process, and postcolonialism. Uh, not just being centered uh, uh, towards perhaps peasants from Egypt up, have, being part of an uprising, but rather it, them directly challenging capitalistic structures and a paradigm that was very much incorporated into European capitalism. I think there's been a lot of debate around how Marxism can change the way we understand post-colonial contexts like Egypt. Uh, and much less work on how actually the Egyptian context can also change the way we understand Marxism. And I think that's where Rahul Rao's intervention is so important, because there has historically at least been this quite intense debate between Marxism and post-colonial theory around the supposed lack of a material basis in post-colonial theory versus the supposed lack of attention to structures like colonialism or 
sexism or, or racism and so on in, in Marxist theory. And I think Rao's point that actually there is also a lot that we can gain from thinking through these canons together and productively was really important for me. And I think a lot of the events in Egypt, especially during this moment, can tell us a lot about why a lens that's kind of attuned to both post-colonial theory and Marxism can be especially productive in kind of rereading some of these historical events. And I think that that has been a really important tradition when we look at, the, at sort of work like the Black Radical tradition, which for a very long time now has been doing that type of work. And to me, that is a really important kind of way of looking at colonial histories as well. The Arab Spring was a series of anti-government protests, uprisings, and armed rebellions that spread across much of the Arab world in the early 2000s. In Egypt, Hosni Mubarak stepped down on the 11th of February, 2011. President Hosni Mubarak has decided to step down President Hosni Mubarak has President Hosni Mubarak has decided to step down as president uh, uh, of Egypt, and he has decided that the higher council of the armed forces will lead the nation. I want to read an excerpt from your book, and one excerpt that specifically speaks to your inspiration. You say, "Quote: The story of 2011 does not have a clear beginning." But there are particular moments during which a number of conditions materialized and came together, producing changes. One such moment can be located in the two decades leading up to the revolution itself, decades during which there was an important shift within Egyptian elite configurations that was to accelerate Egypt's neoliberal restructuring. This resulted in unprecedented numbers of worker strikes and actions, with a total of over 2 million Egyptian workers taking part in actions throughout the 2000s. Another moment could be located further back. It would be a mistake to assume that the precedence of 2011 could be located solely in the decades leading up to the revolution. Instead, events taking place throughout the last century can help us understand why in 2011, Egypt saw a revolution demanding bread, freedom, social justice, a revolution that clearly called for a realignment in Egypt's elite configuration, end quote. So that's a, a very important way, I think, in some way to describe how many of the political processes that people gravitated towards, especially myself when I was living in New York in 2011, seeing Tahrir Square, seeing that mobilization, and then learning what then happened before, it wasn't a result of a single event or a single person, but people and specifically workers um, being militant over years, um, having that kind of in their their um, uh, political history in their veins, in their DNA. And that when we think of revolution, it's not a singular event, but rather what you described, a uh, kind of accumulation and aggregation. Can you speak to how you see these global events then operating in neighboring countries, not just Egypt? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that there is a tendency, and I think this is especially in disciplines like political science or sociology, to be very presentist in kind of understanding contemporary revolutionary events. And I think that that has a lot to do also with the way we consume these events through kind of these media spectacles and 
that we relate to them very viscerally. And I think that that often creates a particular form of analysis that almost separates these you know, events that are happening right now in very dramatic ways from the past. But at the same time, I do think it's really difficult, especially methodologically, to do the type of research that thinks about an accumulation or layering of events over time. I think that that type of research doesn't neatly fit into a lot of sort of disciplinary paradigms, including ones based in history. And that actually a lot of the way that I've thought about this has come from sort of really unlikely spaces. So work, you know, on affect, for example, work on haunting more recently. Those have kind of been the areas that I was able to think about in relation to what does it mean to think about the building up of events rather than uh, this form of causality. More recently, for example, I have been reading really interesting work on leftism in the Gulf countries, for example. So there's a really great book on Oman. There's really great work on Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. And it kind of asks also why this moment in the 50s and 60s has been erased, why leftist movements are often written out of kind of the way we tell nationalist histories, even critical nationalist histories. And a lot of this work is also starting to point to the fact that it's impossible to understand temporary power configurations in the Gulf without understanding this moment, whether it's because of how it was depoliticized and put down or whether it's because of how actually it did have these important effects that are influencing the way events play out today. And so I think a lot of these uprisings, including kind of some of the ones that we see that have gone on for a very long time now, like the Syrian kind of civil war events in Yemen, are actually really closely and intimately connected to histories from the 50s and 60s, to colonial histories, to also further back, you know, when we think about the ways in, diff in which different empires intersected in particular spaces in the region. And so to me, it's been a really important methodological question to think about how do we tell history in this way that thinks about movement and tempo and an accumulation or a rupture rather than kind of creating these causalities or connected explanations, if that makes sense. I want to end with the final question, which is, in many ways, the events in 2011 perhaps are a beginning and there's been ebbs and flows to how people who've been fighting for freedom, bread, justice are still doing and participating in that fight. To what extent are Egyptians today articulating revolutionary politics on the ground? And are there glimmers of hope that you could point to that are maybe a continuation or at least part of the thread of decoloniality that you write about in your book? In the conclusion to the book, I think I talk a little bit about this idea of how 2011 was almost haunted by the the Nasserist revolution that kind of came before it and how many of the claims and the demands that were raised in 2011 actually, interestingly, were both similar to and very different from the ones that we saw in the 1950s. So to me, I think 2011 is important to put in a trajectory with that moment because it shows both kind of 
how many of those demands that were made during this anti-colonial moment were never achieved and are still demands that people really invest in and really kind of think about as important. And I think really clear among those are questions of, you know, state responsibility in terms of a social welfare state, for example. Um, but also beyond that, a very, you know, questions around anti-capitalism, I think, are, incre are increasingly becoming important. But I also think that 2011 is important to note also for different forms of demands that were raised that I think also show kind of how this particular political moment is playing out and questions that maybe to some extent were decentered in the 1950s. So I'm thinking around questions like gender or the role of feminists in nationalist projects, um, I think today have become much more central precisely because of this awareness of what happened in the 50s and how those, the nationalist question trumped everything else and what that meant um, for people who came afterwards. So I think it's, it's really interesting to see the radical demands being that were made in 2011. At the same time, I mean, to me, I, I am hopeful in the sense that I think revolutions are very long projects and what we're seeing now is a very successful counter-revolution. And I think it's a moment now in which, to me, the government is quite weak and that explains a lot of the very intense coercion that's happening. And I think it's also important to know, I mean, that whole generation now was brought up during this last decade and was politicized in ways and that's very difficult I think to undo objectively even if the government's trying so there is hope but I think to me at this moment also really highlights why it's so crucial that things also change in kind of the centers of empire and that it's very difficult to these global structures when it's specific places around the world that aren't necessarily connected in the way they were in the 50s and 60s and that also we're not seeing the changes that we might need to also see in metropole basically so I think that's something that we are still grappling with is what does it mean that these movements need to be truly global I think to have a chance at kind of toppling what are very global structures of oppression. On that note, it would be really good to end on a quote by Angela Davis in which she says, quote, it is in collectivities that we find reservoirs of hope and optimism. <laughs> uh, and in many ways that could be applied to Egypt and a moment in which there's heaps of uh, counter-revolution in Yemen, Syria, so many places that are, are still figuring out how to form and reconfigure um, a kind of politics of radicalism from below without the oppression from above. So thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. Thank you. It was really great. You can follow Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Salem, and we will have a bibliography in the show notes with some of the references that were mentioned as well. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and you're listening to the Decolonization in Action podcast. And this episode was hosted both in Berlin, Germany, as well as in London. <laughs> and to learn more about the podcast or find out more information about the people and events reference, you can visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>